from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And the solution isn't necessarily to keep pushing resources into policing, but rather mental health supports, housing supports. There might be a set of, of officers maybe uh, that, that have that sort of training. Um, and even that training is, is insufficient for really grappling with the variety and depth of, of needs. There's also like, the experiences that countless people have had of 911 just taking a long time to, to respond. You might get a busy signal, you might not get an answer at all. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. When many people encounter a 911 call, it may be an excerpt on the news of a panicked person calling from a life-threatening situation. But those sorts of calls are actually a small percentage of the issues that 911 dispatchers deal with. The community group Forward Through Ferguson has analyzed five years' worth of 911 calls in St. Louis County and has some findings that may surprise you. The group just launched a website, hashtag transforming 911, and it's trying to mobilize support for a rethinking of 911 call service. Here to talk about it is Krishma Furtado. She's the Senior Director of Research and Data for Forward Through Ferguson. She's also the Urban Institute Equity Scholar. Krishma Furtado, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for inviting me on. So what would you say is the biggest misunderstanding that people have about 911 services? Yeah, I think you alluded to it right there in your summary that 911 is used predominantly to respond to people experiencing some sort of major crime or violent crime, when in fact our analyses find that violent crime accounts for maybe 5% of the calls that hmm. St. Louis County PD received over that five-year period from 2015 to 2020, and that one in five calls were for some sort of, of major crime. Rather, the primary reason that folks are calling 911 tend to be for service needs or medical need or behavioral health need. So I think that that is a departure from, as you mentioned, what people expect 911 to be uh, and, used for. And when calls come in for the for those other things like uh, uh, alarm system going off, medical assistance, miscellaneous traffic, uh, does the dispatcher have discretion about who they send out to respond to the call? They do have some discretion. Yes, if if it seems like there's a medical need, they'll route the call or transfer the call over to fire, which is where um, EMS and medical services tend to, to come from. Uh, but that starting point, uh, the default position, if you will, is uh, to route that call into the police. And that's because our 911 services are located within our police departments. While they are a service of public safety systems more generally, we structurally tend to position them within police departments, mm. which I think is, is um, indicative of how we think about 911 as almost an extension of the police department. Let's paint a picture of how the current system works just at, at a basic level. So we, we've got 88 municipalities between St. Louis and St. Louis County. They are served by 53 different police departments. And those police departments dispatch through a network now of, of 15 different essentially call centers. They're, they're called public safety answer points. Do I, do I have mm -hmm. that? Do I have that right? Yeah, you you do have that right. I think I, the one thing I'd add to that is that we 
like to say, we have to say oftentimes about 88 police, uh, municipalities, about 53 police departments and sure, 15 sure. PSAPs because um, our, our municipal geography and all the sort of services and jurisdictions that are contained within it are so in flux because they are so fragmented. So um, from the point of measuring, you know, to the point of reporting, those numbers could shift ever so slightly. All right. So someone's in, say, a university city, they have an issue, whatever it may be, they, they dial the numbers 911 on the phone. W- what happens then? Where does that call go? Who answers it? Yeah, so that call is going to go to one of those PSAPs or call centers, as you described, and a call taker will answer that that call. If that call taker is the same person as a a dispatcher, after they receive the call, they'll ask some questions about uh, where you're located and the nature of what you're experiencing to determine um, what what your need is and, and who to send out. And um, if the if it, the case is that it's you need fire or EMS, that call taker will sort of virtually walk you over to the uh, fire dispatch system, and you'll go through that process. If it seems like you need a, a police response, they'll continue gathering that information, sending it to uh, another information system to then dispatch a, a police officer. Um, to your location or a set of police officers, as the case may be. Okay. Well, with with the understanding that uh, the bulk of calls to 911 uh, call centers are, are not what much of the public thinks they are, just at a basic level of issues coming in from the public and then services going out, in a sense, how, how well is the system working? Yeah, I think it's falling short in a lot of important ways. So missing from that very basic sort of rundown of how the system works is any option that doesn't end up putting uh, a police officer, let's say your, your need is not a fire or EMS um, related. The only other option then is to send police officers your way. And we might have co-responder models that allow for a civilian um, to, to come along for the ride, so to speak, or a social worker, for example. Uh, but by and large, what you're going to get out of that uh, system is an armed police officer coming to your assistance. And that armed police officer might be trained in crisis intervention. Um, but e- these patches that we've put on a, a system that's intended to function as an extension of policing, patches like crisis intervention trained officers or co-responder models, are only going to sort of mute the potential harm that that system could do. Uh, it's not going to open up the possibility of sending only, for example, a civilian uh, response or a a non-police response that Mm. we see in other um, cities that have implemented community-centered first responder alternative programs. And as you say, the officer or officers dispatched to that call may or may not be trained in dealing with what they're walking into. That's right. That's right. Uh, When we look at the patchwork or the array of those 53 police departments in the region, most of them don't have a crisis intervention um, training program that is implemented holistically across the department. There might be a set of, of officers maybe uh, that that have that sort of training. Um, and even that training is, is insufficient for really grappling with the variety and depth of, of needs that our community has and calls on, uh, supports for. So what I'm hearing is that the 
police who are responding to 911 calls have all this training. They maybe have had spent years of, of training uh, and to deal with certain situations, but those aren't often the situations that they're actually being sent out to, to, to deal with. That's exactly right. You know, over the course of decades, we've, we've built services for our, our city that look a certain sort of way. We have systematically stripped money out of social services in order to shore up policing. And this is not unique to St. Louis. It's a, it's a trend that we've seen uh, across the, the country. And in one of the conversations that we had for this project, an interviewee explained that the only place you can go to, the only number that you can call for support 24 hours a day is basically the police. And that's representative of this much larger uh, trend that, that we're shunting all of these problems into uh, the, the police department, which are, are inadequately equipped to deal with them. And the solution isn't necessarily to keep pushing resources into policing, but rather to think about the other services, uh, mental health supports, housing supports, and the like, that are, are, we need to wrap around our community to alleviate the need for, for police to, to intervene and to sort of retrain our, our muscle memory to uh, call for and, and receive supports that prevent uh, the intervention of, of police altogether. Are there professionals out there who are well suited to re- respond to, say, a call of someone having a mental health crisis or, or these, you know, these other calls that, that make the, pr- the, the predominant number of calls that come in? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, we, we have behavioral health professionals out there, mental health professionals, uh, licensed uh, social workers, counselors, and, and the like who are better able to deal with a, a person who's going through some sort of behavioral health crisis. There are also professionals, direct service providers who are better able to plug folks who have some sort of unmet uh, need into services, into resources um, more quickly, more efficiently, less traumatically uh, than than police might be able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen discussion about this nationally. Locally, how much of uh, local municipal budgets are actually devoted to law enforcement? Yeah, so when we took a look at budgets for the police departments in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, we found that policing, almost without exception, tends to be the largest, uh, the the most highly resourced service as a percentage of uh, budgets. And oftentimes, we we see budgets that are, you know, twice as large as the next highest uh, resourced um, service set that the municipal government Provide so it, it's really the police police department is really drawing down on a lot of of resources. Mm. And we are speaking with uh, Krishma Furtado. She is the senior director of research and data at Forward Through Ferguson, also with the Urban Institute as the equity scholar. You mentioned sir, uh, money actually being taken away from some of the social services that might be more on point with respect to what people need help with out there. Uh, have we seen specific examples of that around here? Um, I think when we look at, you know, the, the relative existence of uh, behavioral health uh, supports to, uh, to you know, p- police re- resources, we see a, a decrease there. I don't know that I can point to, like, specific examples of the removal of those um, resources, but I think that there are 
probably a host of my colleagues in more of the direct service provision Mm -hmm. space that could point to where they're feeling that that pinch and that crunch in terms of their budgets and in the resources that they have at their fingertips. When we look uh, around, when we look around in the region, uh, we do see municipal police departments as the the biggest line item on a lot of local budgets. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Well, we've we've heard a lot of problems here about how the system is not meeting the needs of the public. Uh, what would you like to see change? Yeah, I think that there are no when, when the hard truth about the work that we do at, at Forward Through Ferguson is that there tend not to be silver bullets. I think that's one thing that merits um, saying. So the recommendations that we we have tend to fall across an array of categories having to do with the structure of 911 and as I mentioned how it sits within policing as opposed to public safety, the technology, the training, the accountability systems and structures. Uh, so no, no one silver bullet, but what I will say is that ultimately all of those um, recommendations trace their roots back to examining our culture of public safety and that our systems are built on top of and the need for building new structures from there. So right now we are our public safety system is deeply embedded in mental models of law and order, of arrest and incarcerate, of enforcement. And so our policing practices, our 911 system, all of it tends to carry that 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 DNA with it. So all of the recommendations that we have around reworking the structure of 911, um, implementing first responder alternative programs that are more community-centered and, and civilian-based as to as opposed to policing, all of them come from that place of really engaging with and uh, reimagining our culture of public safety more generally. And at Forward Through Ferguson, I believe you're still going through a lot of that data and expect to come up with some more recommendations later in the year. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So uh, keep your eye on that transforming911.org website. It's where we'll be sharing our full report in a few months. And between now and then, we'll be sharing a lot of the photo and video stories that we have been collecting. And if folks have any stories of their experiences with 911 that they feel uh, compelled to share, we would love to collect them there. Uh, In the fall, we'll be having a set of community conversations about uh, this topic. So a lot of that um, that action will be happening through the the website transforming911.org and including the release of the formal report and an expansion of it to look at the city's data, uh, which is set to, to happen later in the year as well. Mm. Well, Karishma, knowing that there's no single switch anyone can flip to, to improve this, who are the, the people out there who can make the kinds of decisions you would like to see made to implement some of the changes you would like to see happen? Just what's the, yeah. what's the path forward here? Yeah, I think the a lot of the decision makers are our local legislators, be they in the mayor's office, in the county council's uh, office, um, in the the board of alders uh, offices. So I think we have a there's a call out to all of us who are you know consumers of these services or would be or should be if we trusted them more to do what we we need them to do to advocate for the type of system that we want to to see. So I think there's a call out to all of us to talk to our legislators about first responder alternatives and to uh, call for the the use of resources to build up, to update our technology to, we haven't gotten a chance to talk much about that, but some of our technology for 911 is simply antiquated and built for a 
a use case that is not at all the case that we see today. So landlines instead of cell phones and, and wireless. Mm. Um, so we've, there's a moment of opportunity, I think, with uh, resources, COVID recovery resources uh, coming into the community to think about how we can rebuild some of these systems in, in more equitable ways. And so I think that we can uh, advance this conversation in, in a pretty tactical, uh, meaningful way if, if we can put mm. our voices behind it. Yeah. And you mentioned a moment ago um, for folks calling 911 who feel comfortable to do so, uh, different communities in this region have different kinds of relationships with their with the police. Mm. Um, are black communities, for instance, in the St. Louis region, um, are members in the, uh, of those communities less likely to want to pick up the phone and call 911 because of their experiences with police? Yeah, anecdotally, absolutely. I think because 911 tends to be considered an extension of the police, there's an understanding that when you call 911, you are effectively calling the police. And there's a lot of mistrust about uh, policing in this in this region, amongst Black communities and region especially. That is not a surprise to, I think, most anyone mm -hmm. here. Uh, so yeah, there there's a lot of mistrust around using 911 as a result. Have there's you... also like experiences that countless people have had of 911 just taking a long time to to respond you might get a busy signal you might not get an answer at all and it, for for a response from that 911 call to to come as well and i think some of your your audience in terms of political persuasion who who may not be up to date on some of these statistics you're talking about or, or necessarily coming to the conversation saying yeah let's change this might have had an experience where they dialed in and couldn't get through or just saw in some way that the system wasn't quite working the way that they anticipated it would work yeah and i think that's part of why 911 is an, an appealing point of entry into this public safety conversation mm. for us because it is this this tool this service that a lot of us have had some sort of experience with uh, it is effectively our, the front door into our public safety system over 50 percent of civilian interactions with police are initiated by those civilians usually through 911 and so i think that there's broad recognition that the system right now isn't working well for most of us. And by that, I mean not only those of us in the community who want to be able to use this community resource, uh, but but have trouble or don't trust it for whatever the reason. And I also mean internal stakeholders. So the call takers, the dispatchers, the administrators who uh, are working in an under-resourced system that doesn't really do what it was intended, uh, what we think it's, it's supposed to do anyway and aren't really valued for, for doing the really hard work that call taking and dispatching is. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you so much for, for, for joining us to talk about this. This is really interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. This episode was produced by Jeremy Goodwin, Danny Wisentowski, and Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Alex Hoyer is our executive producer. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.
Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.